You guys realize we Christians, we believe a lot of weird stuff. Has that ever hit you? Like maybe, maybe if you came to faith late, later in life and, uh, or maybe, you know, you're sitting in this room right now and you're like, I'm not really sure why I'm here. And you're like, no, no kidding, Christians believe a lot of weird stuff. But for those of us who've been sitting in this for a while, we believe a lot of weird stuff. And sometimes it just, it feels old. Sometimes the stories that we hear over and over and over again, just, they kind of get old hat. I remember having one of those moments when, because I grew up in the church. Uh, my folks were missionaries in Mozambique, in Africa. And, um, and I had one of those moments uh, when I was talking to my pastor down in Chattanooga. I'd come to the United States. I was at college, in Covenant College, and I was worshiping in an all-black congregation. Um, I guess it wasn't all black because I was there, uh, but I was a member there. And, um, and I was talking to Pastor Eddie Jack, some of the best preaching you ever heard. And he's, the name of the church was Resurrected Reformed Baptist Church. And I always thought that was a little odd. Resurrected Church. And he looked at me when I was asking him about the name and he said, well, Kent, this is when I was in seminary and I realized how much the resurrection changes everything. I didn't know what he meant. Do you know what that means? Does the resurrection actually change everything in the way that you see the world? That's what we're going to talk about today. Our passage today is uh, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, we're continuing on our, in our series in hope. We're going to read today from verses 3 through 5. So, if you uh, are able and willing, would you stand out of respect for the word of God? 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's the true word of the living God. And he gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask that you would move right now. I think for a lot of us, old truths can feel old. We can be worn out. If we've been walking the Christian walk for a long time. Father, if we're new in our faith, then maybe a lot of this stuff sounds confusing. And we're not really sure how it changes everything. And maybe, Father, for those of us who still don't believe, we, we have no idea what any of this has to do with our lives and how it touches down. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move. I pray that you would meet every heart where we're at. God, we're trusting you to work. So I ask that you'd open our eyes, help us to see Jesus. Would you change us? Whether we've been walking with you for 90 years or whether we're just starting this exploration of relationship with you. I ask that you would move. You'd shape our hearts.
help us to fall more in love with Jesus because of our time together. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. All right, so, uh, a little hot there. Um, As Rick mentioned before, our lead pastor, Rick, is out on vacation, uh, so I'm preaching a little mini-series on hope starting last week, uh, and we talked about how hope is critical to being a Christian. It's one of the three marks that are everywhere in Scripture. When, When the Bible talks about what it looks like to be a Christian, you've got faith, hope, and love. We talked about how, like, when we talk about faith, we're all good with that. When we talk about love, we're, we're, you know, we're, we can kind of be on the same page with that, but we don't often think of hope as something that we Christians are called to grow into, right? So, hence the reason for this series. And we decided we're going to do this from the book of 1 Peter. Not the book, but just the first few verses. Peter's writing to Christians in northern Turkey. They're going through stuff fairly similar to what we're going through, like a little bit more on the harder end of persecution. Um, and what he does is he anchors them in hope. And he writes to them about the importance of, well, he, he defines hope as this trusting in God to come through on his promises. Faith in the God who controls the future. And he does that by grounding them in God's promises. That's what, that was all last week. Those promises are the ancient foundation for our hope. And so today we're going to look at how Jesus' resurrection is the climax of God's faithfulness. The climax of God's faithfulness to his promises. And the reason that Peter says we can have a living hope. Jesus' resurrection literally marks the watershed point of everything. History turns at the door to Jesus' tomb. History turns at the door to Jesus' tomb. And maybe for some, of that, that, for some of us, that's really hard to believe, right? So what, I'm, what we're going to try to do in this sermon today is we're going to try to point out the massive difference between things that were on that side of the, of the stone where Jesus was buried. They took him, they brought him into the tomb, they rolled a big stone over the entrance. And on that side of the stone in history before Jesus stepped out of the tomb, like, we're going to have to sit in that. And then we'll talk about how Jesus stepping out of the tomb changes everything. All right, here's the deal, right? We got to look at the problem of death. It's going to be cheery. It's okay. I promise you, like after, uh, <laughs> after the first, a few minutes, we're going to get beyond this. Um, but our culture in particular has been really influenced by Christianity. And so maybe for you, you know, like, you're overly familiar with the Christian concept of heaven and life after death. Maybe you just kind of assume that's what happens, right? And, and frankly, in our culture, we don't like to talk about death at all. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. We hide it. We pay people to go deal with it so we don't have to. Right? But if we're going to understand how Jesus' resurrection shifted everything, then we're going to have to stand here on this side of the stone for a little while, on that side, before the resurrection, before, before anyone had come alive permanently from death. So this is where we're going to hang out for a little bit. So sit with me. Okay. 
Again, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Sit with me in this. Entropy, death, are this world's greatest inevitability, right? Everything is heading in that direction. Everything is breaking down on that downward trajectory into this state of death, including you. Your lungs stop expanding and contracting. Your heart stops beating. Your brain goes silent. And then what? See, for a lot of human beings, that's the question. That was the question for hundreds, for millennia of human history. What happens after that point? We know this person, this is no longer them. They are gone and nothing anybody can do can bring that person back. What happens then? And so we came up with answers. Human religion, like exploring these ideas of, okay, well, throwing out thoughts on, here's what happens after death. There are three main ones. But the interesting thing is, in all these um, religious answers to death before Christ, there's no real concept of actual like life and fullness after death. So what you have is, you know, a, kind of like a shadowy existence, you know, in, in a lot of forms of religion. A shadowy existence. You die, and then you go to this world, kind of familiar with the Greek concept of shades. Uh, you die, and then you go into this world that's kind of like this one, but it, it, it's shadowy and murky. There are these spirits just hanging around. Sometimes they have nothing to do with this world. Sometimes they do, like an African animism. You, you die, and you come back, and, you know, grandma may decide she's got it out for you. She starts afflicting you with sickness and illness. So we see that in African animism and in the Greek concept of the underworld in Hades and Eastern ancestor worship. Some versions of Christianity too. But we die and we go into this kind of ethereal heaven, float around on clouds, play golden harps, not really living, right? Bible's vision of life after this is very different. So what you're left with is a life spent terrified of angry spirits, because again, our concept of ghosts come here, with nothing substantial to look forward to after life. Life is kind of hopeless. So that's the shadowy existence thing. That's one, one human answer, religious answer. The other answer is kind of like a variation on the same theme. You have either you are absorbed into the life force, or you're reintroduced into the life cycle in, in some way or other, right? So the idea of like uh, being absorbed into the life force that comes from Neo, like we have that example in Neoplatonism. So this was an idea back in Jesus' time. Or in Buddhas, Buddhism's Nirvana, you kind of like, you reach this state where you finally just become one with the life force. Or you're reintroduced into the life cycle, the idea of reincarnation. Again, old thoughts, uh, the Egyptians, ancient Egyptian religion believed in this and Hinduism believes in this. And so the result is life isn't really about hopes. It's about performance. Because if you're good enough, then you can either get absorbed in the life force or you can like maybe move up the life cycle chain a little bit. And then the final human answer to what happens after death you're just dead. You 
that's not a new concept to our world. The, the Sadducees, they were a sect that lived during Jesus' time. They denied that anybody, they denied that a resurrection was a real thing, right? Uh, the Epicureans were most noticed, uh, notable for this. They say, the gods don't care, so eat and drink. Be merry, tomorrow we die. This life is all you have. So frankly, if you don't go and get what's yours right now and you don't have the means to do it, then sorry. It's just kind of it. Okay, just as an aside, um, that kind of perspective has tended to be common among the wealthy elites of the world. We're part of the wealthy elite. Western culture is among the wealthy elites. It's interesting, isn't it? Why do you think so? Because these educated wealthy elites have the money and power to, to maybe pretend like they have a measure of control over the world, right? And they have the money and power to like, then want to go just spend it all on themselves. This is where our culture is, increasingly so. It's convenient to deny the existence of God when you're busy trying to be God and then trying to use whatever you have to just please yourself. So that ties into the generosity series that Rick is preaching through. So even in the Old Testament, right, there wasn't, there wasn't huge indications of what happened after life, after death. You have shadows, you have hints, but in this whole section of scripture right here, you still don't really know. And there was a huge debate raging during Jesus's time uh, among the Jews of his day. Again, like I said, Sadducees said there was no such thing as life after death. And other people were like, no, I'm, I, there's gotta be. This world can't be all there is. The idea that human beings can come back bodily into a world that's been reborn out of sin and death is a uniquely Christian idea. It was actually ridiculed. And one of the hardest things for people to swallow, Christianity hit the scene. So given that context, are you surprised at all that really the Greek word for hope didn't really mean what we kind of associate with hope? This idea of like a future expectation, a, a like excited looking forward to? Instead, really, it was more about just knowing something was coming down the pipeline, often dreading it. What was there to hope for? What was there to hope for? And so it's into that context, y'all. Into this context where everyone's like, they know death is coming, that death is inevitable. And all human beings are heading toward that. And we have no real idea what happens afterwards. It's into that context that God introduces what Peter calls the living hope. Living hope of the resurrection. So let's look at verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Don't miss that. According to God's great mercy. Do you realize that the, the character of God is one of great mercy? God looks on our misery as death-bound humans and these pathetic religious systems that we build for ourselves to give us some, some kind of shred of hope. God is moved to compassionate action. Maybe you've heard mercy defined as God withholding what we 
deserve and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Like that's a fine definition. Um, it just, it misses out a little bit because mercy is more than God just withholding what we deserve. It's God feeling deep pity for us. Seeing us in our misery and moving to relieve it. That, that is God's merciful character. And, and over and over and over again in scripture, that's the God we see. A God who sees even his enemies who are in outright total rebellion against him, running hard in the opposite direction. And what does he do? He feels for them and he moves compassionately toward them. God in his great mercy moved into our death-eaten world. And what, what drove that was his mercy. And just as a, another quick aside, right? God feels this way about you. I know it can be hard, especially if you're suffering, to believe that God has any kind of feelings towards you, except maybe the negative ones where he's like out to get you. But the profound character of our God is one of mercy. He sees misery and he moves toward it. Maybe you're asking then, why don't I feel that right now? Where is God moving? I don't have time to get into all of it, so you're welcome to come talk to me afterwards. Um, But just because we don't see God moving doesn't mean he isn't, right? I have countless examples in my life and people who've walked with the Lord for, for years have examples of this where like you didn't know God was doing something, but he was behind the scenes. Meanwhile, your lived experience of it was like, I'm in anguish, where are you? God sees you. He sees you there. He feels deep compassion for you. If you are his child, he moves towards you. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We'll talk a little bit more about born again later. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Let's sit in the resurrection for a little bit. All right, we're still on this side of the stone, on that side, before Jesus walks out of the tomb. You realize when Jesus died, nobody was expecting him to come out of that tomb, right? Like nobody. Jesus' mom wasn't saying, you know, death can't kill my boy. It's going to be okay. His best friends were mourning and like they lost everything when they lost their friend Jesus. Because in everybody's experience... Dead people stay dead. Jesus was dead. And so when Jesus walked out of the grave to this side of the stone, it electrified the cosmos. This world that was heading toward entropy, heading toward death, heading toward nothingness changed. And the the many hundreds of people who witnessed this, because, you know, it wasn't like Jesus just appeared to three or four people. He appeared to hundreds of people after his death, and they didn't have a concept for being able to understand this. They were like, wait, but you died. Yeah, I know. I'm here again. But you're dead. Yeah, right. See, hands, feet, side. I was dead. I'm alive. I don't know what to think about that. Like, do you get it? 
people didn't expect to see him again. This was weird. It blew paradigms. This should not have happened, but it did. And because it did, it changed everything. And it shaped how people saw theology. So even in, even in the Old Testament, people didn't have this idea that you could come back from the, from the dead. There, was, there were hints at it again, but when Jesus came back alive, suddenly everybody looks back on the Old Testament like, oh, I get it. Jesus' resurrection is what shaped theology, what shaped Christian thinking. It wasn't as if they knew because they were reading their Bibles back then. Very faithful people were reading their Bibles and believed there's no such thing as life after death until Jesus walked out of that tomb. It shaped theology because they suddenly realized God was going to be faithful to all the promises to rescue. Even though you had hints in the Old Testament and some people thought, no, surely there can't, this can't be it. God is going to somehow renew all of this sort of stuff. The resurrection proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. God was going to be faithful. And he had started it all off with this man, Jesus. God had dealt with our sin and our curse. Death no longer had the last word. It could be reversed. God, in Jesus, would remove death entirely from our world. It started with one man. And now it's going to move to the cosmos. So history turns at the door to Jesus' tomb. When Jesus stepped out from that side of the stone, he left death in the tomb for good. He himself had become the living, breathing hope of the world. God was changing everything. Jesus was proof. And Jesus' resurrection gives us a hope, a certain expectation for two major things, according to the passage here. And we're going to look at them now that we're on this side of the stone. And these two things are an inheritance and a mighty God. Okay. So let's look at this inheritance. Peter says, has has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. All right. So under this idea of inheritance, let's, let's work a little bit with this idea of being born again. All right. And here's why. Because I'm sure you've heard the term born again a lot. Born again Christians. It was especially uh, popular in the 90s and so forth. What does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? All right, and there are three things I'm gonna blaze through real quick. Uh, One, it means a change in your perspective, okay? You ever have somebody be like, you know what? I tried hot sauce on my eggs for the first time and I feel like a new person, a new man. My perspective's changed. I'm only ever gonna eat hot sauce or eggs with hot sauce now, which... I don't, I hate hot sauce. So it's not me, I'm not a new man. Um, but it, like, it's like life has changed. Things are different now. Wouldn't your perspective change? When Jesus comes out of the tomb and you realize, oh, so this life isn't all there is. I don't just have 85 years to live. There's more beyond it. So you have a change in perspective. There's also a change in your status because you're made an heir of this inheritance. Okay, so in the Old Testament, the idea of an inheritance um, wasn't just, hey, you got cash after somebody died. That's kind of how we do things here. An inheritance in the Old Testament was, this plot of land belongs to your family, and it belongs to your family forever. And it had two main implications. It meant you had a place 
among God's people. No one could ever take that away. They couldn't boot you out. You belonged among God's people. You could say, hey, I'm an Israelite by birth. I live in this area. You also had provision. Because if you had land and you grew up in a land of farmers, well, this is how you were going to get your stuff, right? So an inheritance in the Old Testament, you get provision and you have a place. And when Peter says you've been born again into this inheritance, he's highlighting that you you used to not be part of God's family on that side of the stone. And now you are. God made you a part of this. And it's not, it's not even that you're adopted into it. It's like you're born into this. You are as 100% in this family as you can possibly be. So you have a place. No one's going to kick you out. No one can kick you out. You're also provided for. And y'all, God is going to provide for all of us who are his children. When he remakes everything, it's going to be better than we ever dream. He's going to provide for us. And he's going to provide for you now. Sometimes I think it's easier for us to believe, oh yeah, he'll, you know, the promises say we'll get heaven and all that inheritance. And we just kind of shove it all out in that direction. God will provide for you now. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to look like what you think. My version of provision, God's going to give me a Lamborghini. He's going to give me a $500,000 home. Like, No, God will care for me. He will care for you. He's going to take care of you. He's your father. Nothing can change that. You have a place in his family. He's going to provide for you. So it's a change in your perspective. It's a change in your status. It's also a change in your ability. And here I want to talk about living into resurrection power. Okay, And we're not going to get weird about this. Here's my, do you feel stuck? Do you feel stuck? I think a lot of us, especially those of us who have been born uh, or, you know, grew up as Christians and so forth, a big part of our hopelessness often has to do with this idea, like we live into the lie that we cannot hope for things to change, that we just are the way we are and that's how it's going to be, Right? here's the deal. Though change will always be hard, really hard, it is possible. And we should hope for that. Okay? Why? Because the major part of this down like of this inheritance that we're getting from the Lord, a huge part of this it's, it's called the down payment in the New Testament. It's God's Holy Spirit living in every one of his children. Every single person God has adopted into his family has his Holy Spirit. And that is a game changer. Why? Because ever since our rebellion, um, human beings are born dead. We're born cut off from God's life-giving power. And this is the power we were meant to have in the very beginning. So remember, very first human beings, God sculpts Adam out of clay. What does he do? He breathes life into Adam. That word for breath is the same word for like Holy Spirit. 
God filled Adam with his spirit. Human beings were meant to live in this kind of connection with God. But when we rebelled against God and we said, hey, we'd rather do life on our own. We don't want to have to obey you. We ripped that connection apart. So we're kind of like an unplugged toaster now. You ever ever like, what use is a toaster (laughs) if you're not like making toast with it? It's ugly. Just occupy space on the counter. Like, really, though. Like, you push the thing down. Oh, it's, it's unplugged. It's kind of what we are. Until Jesus, coming back from the dead, gave God's Holy Spirit back to his people. So now, it's like you take a new breath. Now you can live. Now you can be and do everything that God has called you to be and do. He plugged you back in. The same power, Paul tells us, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is also at work in you. I know we hear that stuff all the time. We actually believe it. Again, I get, some of us have been wrestling with issues for years and years. Change is hard, right? when you've been wrestling with something for a long time, it's hard to believe that there can actually be change. Um, I'm not an extraordinary Christian, but I just want to, I want to give you hope. You know, Um, I've seen God change me from anger and hating people, just kind of being, you know, (laughs) um, bound to, Um, addictive patterns and so forth like that. I've seen God change that. Over many years, using community, using people who pressed into my lives. Again, this is why we push small groups so much here at Holy Cross. Using a lot of prayer, mostly a lot of relationships. Um, So when when I talk about change, I believe this for you. And it's not just because I've experienced it. Most importantly, it's because it's in here. The Holy Spirit, God's living power dwells in you. He wants to rid us of our sin. It's not gonna happen perfectly. We're gonna struggle and fight like our whole life long. But change is possible. It can help you stop yelling at your kids can help you start moving to repair that relationship that's broken. He can help break those, those mental patterns in your head. So push into community. Take, take, take um, means, take hold of the means that God provides, right? That can include medication. Definitely includes his church, includes his word. Change is possible. And I want us to believe that because that does help make us people of hope. All right, it's way longer than I meant to spend on that. Um, but it's the area where I think we, we really struggle. And if you're still fighting that, if you're thinking, maybe that's fine for you, Ken. <laughs> My life is different. 
I'd love to talk to you. I really would. Um, Because I do believe this for you. And I believe God wants you to believe it for yourself. All right. So it's a change in your perspective. It's a change in your status. So now you have provision and place in God's family. It's a change in your ability. You now have power to do the things that you were meant to always do. And Peter works overtime. You notice this in verse four? He works overtime to then say this inheritance, it's secure, right? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. He's just like, he's, he's putting on those adjectives there. Like, do you get the picture? It's secure. You've got, like, it, it, is, it is locked in. Because Jesus secured it for you. Your place, it's secure. Your provision, it's secure. The power to change, it's secure. God's Holy Spirit living and working inside of you, that's secure. Your future is secure. Your hope is secure. And how can you be sure, Right? How can you be sure? You ever think that? How do you know this, this, this priceless promised inheritance that is yours won't like slip through your fingers somehow because you're just a frail human being and you screw things up? I ask that question all the time about me. Here's why. Because that inheritance was never in your hands to begin with, right? It's in God's almighty hands. So let's talk about this guarding God. Things that we get, the the, the living hope, being on this side of the stone now. We have that inheritance and we have this guarding God. Remember who we're talking about in in verse five. He says, uh, kept in heaven for you who by God's power. Okay, look, if I say who by Melody's power are being guarded, you're right to laugh. My little three-year-old cannot like do it. Who by God's power, God's power. Oh, that's true. Melody is four. I I apologize. (laughs) Uh, Still, powerless. Um, God isn't just some bigger, better version of me and you, which is often what we believe, right? This is our maker. This is the maker of everything. This is the one, the universe crafting all maker who like speaks worlds into existence. This is who we're talking about. That kind of God is guarding. And, And note, like, Who's acting in this passage? Okay, go down. I invite you. Look at all the verbs in these three verses. What you'll notice is they're full of what we call divine passives. This is God acting. And what are we doing? Nothing. Nothing. We are doing nothing to contribute to this great salvation, to this big plan. God is doing everything. The God who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. The God who started it all is guarding you and your inheritance. The word guard, like, again, the word guard in in Greek is like our word guard in English. We just don't hear it. What does guard look like? It's like a, you know, secret service. You're not getting past these people. God stands guard over you, over your inheritance. The words are really strong here. 
And what does that mean for your hope? Well, that's what Peter said, right? This kind of mighty God is guarding you and your hope is secure. No one can change that. Not even you. Your hope is secure. And God cares about your hopes and your dreams, your current lived experience, okay? And I know that's hard to believe because even if, again, if we accept that our capital H hope, our eternal future, all that is secure in God, we often still struggle to believe that our little H hopes, what job am I gonna get? I really, I'd like to see this happen in my family. I'd really like for this relationship to work out. All those little H hopes that we have. God cares about those too. We struggle to believe that though. But here's the deal. This God of great mercy, who was moved toward you, moved to act toward you, and who gave you his life, this, this resurrection life at great cost to himself, who gives you an inheritance behind, beyond your wildest imaginations and who stands guard over you. And not just over you, but like treasures you. And who tells you your hope is living and your future is secure. Can we really say the God who's done all that doesn't, doesn't care about our little H hopes? Doesn't care about your current lived experience? How could that kind of God not care about you and what you're going through right now? And we'll talk a lot more about this next week. Um, Last week, we talked about the promises of God. This week, we're talking about how the resurrection shifts all of that and causes us to like really be able to believe believe those promises and change everything. And next week, we'll talk about, okay, so how how does this affect our lives? How should we then live, right? Friends, when Jesus stepped out from that side of the stone to this side, he left death in that tomb for good. He himself became the living, breathing hope of the world, a living hope. Our guarantee of God's inheritance, of having a place, of having provision, of having power to change. Our guarantee of God's protection, merciful and tender, his care over us, secured for all eternity. Because history turns at the doorway to Jesus' tomb. So here's my question for you. As you head home, what side of that doorway are you living on? Are we living with the dead hopes? Living fearful of change or the possibility of it? living as though our Savior didn't come? Or are you living into the hope that is yours, secured for you by a God who loves you? That is your inheritance. Would you pray with me? Father, I I ask that, again, your word would shape and change us. I pray that you would move us further away from death, the death that we, we brought on ourselves. Um, 
and move us more toward the living hope that is ours in Jesus. Jesus, you changed everything in coming out of that tomb. And so, Father, I ask that we would live as a resurrected people, as a people with living hope, celebrating and delighting in our God, moved into a dying world, is bringing life out of death. Did that for Jesus. He's doing it for us. He's doing it for this world. Lord, I pray, help us to live that way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.